1: We did get those jobs uh, numbers earlier today. They were great by almost all accounts, with you uh, participation increasing, the jobless rate falling to the lowest since 2000, and even wages accelerating. But can this continue, and what does this mean about the path of Fed rate hikes? To answer all of these questions for us, I want to bring in Torsten Slock. He's chief international economist at Deutsche Bank, also uh, a publisher of charts that are extraordinary and timely. Torsten, thank you so much. For joining us. So first, just can you please just give us your take on today's jobs report?
2: No, absolutely. You just summarized it very well. Uh, This is uh, indeed some very good numbers, both on the headline, of course, the number of jobs created, the unemployment rate falling. And most uh, importantly, we've been waiting for uh, wages to go up. uh, And it's uh, in some sense finally happening after uh, quite some time. Uh, and in some sense, it's a really good day for the economics profession. We have been uh, looking for wages to go up. We've seen in a number of indicators. The employment cost index has gone up. The quits rate has been high. And now we're finally also seeing uh, the last shoe drop here in the average hour earnings data today also ticking higher. So, so hold on overall, it is, it is very good news, both it- for the American consumer and for the US economy.
1: Are you basically saying that the Phillips curve works?
2: Yes. So now, of course, uh, the forensics can begin. uh, We can begin to discuss uh, why has it not worked or has it been dead or is it waking up or what was the reason why it it took so long time? Uh, One answer to that is that um, we have seen a structural change over the last uh, several years where the number of people who are staying in their jobs, uh, if you do that, you tend to get basically very little wage increase. Uh, So what we have seen more recently is that the number of people who are quitting jobs, they have tended to get higher wage growth and the fact that the data today shows you that we are at the highest level of people who voluntarily are leaving their jobs in 20 years and that's also boding quote-unquote well for more wage pressure going forward simply because people who stay in their jobs tend to get very little wage increase whereas if you switch jobs that's when you get the big wage boost and the more people who are switching jobs the more we will see wage increase so in some sense looking at it today it does make sense to say that wages have been going up because the Phillips Curve structurally changed so that you had to be a job switcher to see an increase in wages, rather if you were a job stayer, then you would not see an increase in wages. So it's implicitly a recommendation for everyone here to go out and switch jobs because this is the main way today to get a wage increase.
0: Okay. Uh, Let's say you don't want to switch a job. Let's say you're just looking for a job or indeed you're out of the labor force. What's your thought about the labor force participation rate?
2: Yeah, so that has, uh, as you uh, implicitly have in your question, that has been uh, not been ticking up as much as uh, we all would have thought. Uh, but that being said, uh, there are a number of reasons why people are still outside the labor market. Uh, some people are structurally difficult to get into the labor market again. Uh, but we are beginning to see, uh, and this was in the beige book uh, this week, anecdotes that uh, employers are beginning to relax conditions for Uh, drug testing and also conditions for criminal records testing. And uh, those anecdotes are telling us very importantly that we are beginning to uh, reach... the outer stock of the labor force in terms of uh, how much available labor there is. So I understand that the participation rate could potentially be slightly higher, but uh, generally speaking, the fact that wages are going up is indeed already telling us that if there really were all these people sitting outside the labor market, then we would not see wages go up at this point. So we still believe that the labor market is very tight and therefore that uh, we are again going to see more upward pressure on wages going forward.
1: So Torsten, one thing that struck me was that the yield curve flattened after this report. In other words, the gap between 10 and two-year Treasury yields flattened. It's about the lowest since 2007. This seems to indicate that people think that the Federal Reserve is going to hike rates uh, more frequently this year than basically stymie growth in the longer term and pause and not hike more in the years after. Do you think that that is an accurate assessment?
2: Yeah, so the the challenge here is that the, the, the front end of the yield curve or two-year rates and, and even shorter in have been driven a lot by Fed expectations. And Fed expectations generally have been, and including today, driven a lot by what is the macro data telling us for the U.S. And the data today basically says, you know what, the Fed has been right. The Fed uh, has been on the right trajectory. And uh, it's actually probably likely that they will be raising rates that they have The way that they have promised us. What's more complicated, and which is a very important part of uh, of your point here, and that is to think about what are long rates doing, and long rates in the U.S., uh, of course, uh, this week in particular, but generally move around for global reasons and for reasons that are unrelated to what's going on in the U.S. economic data. Uh, So um, the fact that the yield curve has moved the way it has today, I think it just tells you that uh, for now the market is back to believing, and you could also see on your Bloomberg screen, expectations to what the Fed will do over the coming meetings, uh, that the market is back to believing that the the Fed is still raising rates and we are still on an upward trajectory. And for now, that continues to be a relatively strong outlook for the U.S. economy overall. That's implicit in that.
0: Torsten, I wonder if we could just switch uh, topics for a second and get your thoughts about Italy. Uh, We've got the swearing-in of the new government, uh, President Sergio Mattarella at the Quirinale Palace uh, swearing in the new government today. What are your thoughts about what that means for the euro and the European Central Bank?
2: so uh, of course the challenge for the ecb here is that uh, they have been for uh, a long time now on track to say that they would end qe later this year you can discuss if it's september or december and then they would uh, most likely they have also been saying that several uh, members of the governing council have been say at the ecb have been saying that they would probably hike rates sometime by the second quarter of next year uh, the good news is that uh, we now have a government in italy uh, this is at least uh, more clarity and more much less turbulent than what we had earlier this week, where we had a lot more uncertainty. Uh, So... In some sense, uh, there's probably a bit of a sigh of relief at the ECB today that uh, now we can go back, both at the ECB and in markets, and look at the economic data. Inflation was a little bit better in Germany and the Euro area this week, uh, including also in Spain. Uh, And if the fundamentals still justify it, which we absolutely believe, then uh, we do still think that the ECB is on track here to uh, gradually exit with ending QE later this year and raising rates uh, sometime in the second quarter of next year. But it is... uh, A complicated situation, of course, where you have on the one side all the economics, which in some sense is very simple because that's telling you should they exit or should they not exit. Uh, And on the other side of the table, you basically have um, uh, these uh, political winds and forces and the ebb and tide of different things that are happening that makes the quantification of those risks rather complicated.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Torsten Slock is the chief international economist at Deutsche Bank, talking about today's non-farm payrolls report, as well as events in Europe.
1: American workers are finally starting to see their paychecks increase according to the jobs numbers that we got out earlier this morning. Average hourly earnings increased by 2.7% from a year earlier, that is more than projected. But are these wages increasing quickly enough and why have they been so slow to rise? To answer some of these questions, I wanna bring in David Weil. He is Dean of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, also the former head of the wage and hour division of the U.S. Department of Labor uh, back in 2014. Uh, Dean Weil, thank you so much for joining us. So I wanna get your take first on the numbers that we got out this morning uh, from the Labor Department. Pretty much across the board, a solid read. What's your take?
3: Uh yeah I think that's right. I mean it's certainly good news when the economy adds that many uh jobs uh to the economy and uh and when the unemployment rate falls. So uh overall you know we have the long recovery that that certainly began well into uh back in the Obama administration. Um, I think the continuing concern is with unemployment rates as low as they are, just the fact that wages still look very slow in recovering, um, very different than what we've seen in the past.
0: I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the labor force participation rate. And when maybe your students come to you and say, can you explain why it remains low?
3: Well, the labor force participation rate really is about whether people's optimism about whether or not they're going to be able to find the kind of employment they're looking at in the labor market. And it's a measure of uh, the difficulty, the continuing difficulty of coaxing, um, you know, an important part of our labor force back into the labor market. And I think one of the reasons we, again, have seen what looks like historically lower rates of, of labor force participation than in past recoveries, Um, is the kinds of jobs that are out there, the kinds of opportunities that people are seeking, um, just are not as attractive as they once were. We've really restructured our economy in ways that um, uh, just are are less and less favorable to working people.
1: So, But that said, we are seeing... We are seeing wages increase at this point. So I'm wondering, you know, first of all, is it enough? Because we have seen rents increase uh, at a much faster pace, for example, uh, than wages, as well as energy costs of late and other sort of fixed costs in people's lives. Is a 2.7% increase enough in your view?
3: Uh, well, it's not. And it's not for both the short-term reasons you cite. I mean, there was a lot of uh, costs, uh, particularly that uh, lower-income households are vulnerable to, like the cost of gasoline and and housing, Um, but there's even a more fundamental longer-term reason why these levels of wage growth just aren't sufficient, and that's that um, real wages for working people for decades have stagnated, and uh, there's just an immense, there's a wage gap that we really need to recover. There's just a big part of the growth of the economy that in the past workers shared uh, with people who you know owned uh, owned capital and 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 who had labor they shared those gains
1: Wait. well this that
3: hasn 't happened
1: this is a really important point why i mean this is not a past five years issue a past ten years issue this is a decades long issue why
3: that's that 's exactly right it is uh, it really goes back to the late 1970s and the eighties and and uh, grew much more in in the post-Great Recession period. And the, the answer to your question is employment now looks really different than it used to look. Employers used to, the the major businesses that drive our economy across the different sectors, manufacturing service, used to directly employ millions and millions of workers. That is no longer the case, that the whole structure of employment has shifted out, whether it's through outsourcing or subcontracting or third-party management. Uh, And it used to just be about low-wage workers. Now, with what people like to call the gig economy that goes way beyond just the digital platform world, uh, there are more and more jobs where the people who actually employ you are no longer the main companies that really still drive the economy. And that means the way wages are set look really different. A lot of those gains that go from increasing productivity and expansion of our economy are no longer being shared because the people setting those wages are, are sometimes these lower level subcontractors or other parties uh, who simply cannot pass on the wage gains the way they used to.
0: But is it possible that they can't pass along the increased cost because, as you describe, you have a new economy where there's always someone else breathing down your neck that doesn't have legacy costs or legacy employees that they have to shoulder the burden for?
3: Absolutely right. And unfortunately, many of the reasons why you have leading companies in the retail sector and manufacturing and hotel industry really across the board shifted out those jobs is they wanted to get rid of those legacy costs. They wanted to get rid of the the costs of expensive costs about employing people. Um, that used to be part of the social contract that we thought this was part of employment. You kind of shared the burdens of Whether it was unemployment assurance or worker compensation or just meeting basic wage and hour requirements, that used to be my job in the labor department. Um, That has been uh, our laws and and the structuring of our economy have allowed that burden to be shifted out to employers who, as you correctly say, uh, are in direct competition with a bunch of other employers who are less able of doing that and. uh, the party that bears the burden, the, the risks that have been shifted um, more and more are on, on working people.
0: Just quickly give you 10 seconds. Is there a role that the government will play or do you believe that that's over as well?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly in the next few years, I, I would, would doubt it, although we're seeing at the state level, uh, uh, government is jumping in with increases in minimum wage and right. other kinds of ways of helping helping working people. In the long term, I think government's going to have to play a role yeah. uh, in, in really writing this.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us, uh, David Weil, Dean of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, former head of the Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Department of Labor. In March of 2017, our next guest uh, was uh, before the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence hearing, the topic Disinformation, a Primer in Russian Active Measures and Influence Campaigns. Clint Watts is a senior fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. He can be followed on Twitter at Selected Wisdom. And he is the author of a new book entitled Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, and Russians and Fake News. Clint Watts, thank you very much for Thanks being for having here. me.
4: Why did you write this book? I actually had a proposal for the book together before I testified, and no one wanted it. They were not interested. And getting people interested in the Russian disinfo in 2016 was very difficult. Uh, The Islamic State was the focus of everything. Uh, People weren't buying into the Russian stuff or that it mattered, and that all changed in about a year. And I wanted people to understand that a lot of these phenomenons had played out repeatedly. So the Arab Spring, if you remember, that was the Facebook revolution. didn't really turn out that way in the end. Uh, The Islamic State overtook Al-Qaeda on social media. If you look at our own politics, social media populism, the Trump wave overtook the GOP. And now you look at uh, the resistance and sort of its offspring, you know, with the Democratic Party. So we're seeing the social media populism pop up in different contexts around the world.
1: You said that the book introduces us to a frightening world in which terrorists and cyber criminals don't hack your computer. They hack your mind. What does that mean? I mean, and what's the difference between hacking your mind and disinformation and just a good campaign?
4: Right. So we used to always worry about, for example, hackers hacking into the U.S. power grid, uh, you know, and turning it off or, or breaking it down or for a country doing it. The real art of it now is you can convince an American, potentially, unwittingly, to turn the power grid off for you. That's the different objective because it also gives you plausible deniability of actually doing it. And you're using an unwitting ally, which is a low-cost and very effective way to achieve your objectives. And that's really what the Russians figured out was they combined some different techniques. If you remember Anonymous and Lulsec, the original hackers, they were going around stealing people's information and dumping it out onto the Internet. The Russians understood that, too. They've they've been doing compromising information for a long, long time. So when they hit the DNC, John Podesta, General Breedlove, they understood, I'm going to do this out there. But rather than try and hack just for the information, I'm going to use it to drive influence. And it's a much more powerful technique because you're changing the way the audience that you're targeting is perceiving not only information, but their own politics, their own country, their own institutions.
0: I want to mention that uh, you're a graduate of uh, West Point, U.S. Military Academy. Uh, You served in the infantry. Thank you very much for your your service. Uh, You also uh, worked as a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and uh, served on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Do we face terrorism or do we face criminals?
4: Uh, you face both and it really comes down to you know what their objectives are and the objective is either money or is it ideology you know changing governments taking down uh, the United States we face both and What's interesting is that they learn from each other. So criminals, uh, activists, they both learn from each other in terms of tools. You know, when we look at criminal hackers, they came after, if you remember, the old activists, the hackers, you know, the people that did it for fun and for just learning. Criminals recognize that and said, well, you know what else we could use this for? We see the same thing going on now, by the way, with disinformation. The Russians are brilliant at the art of disinformation, but now everybody is copying their playbook. So i have been talking a lot about the 2018 elections. I'm not so worried about the Russians as I am. Everybody else is copying it. And so what you're seeing is those who can amass data from lots of social media companies, your purchasing preferences, and use advanced technology like machine learning, they have cutting-edge ability to do influence campaigns on steroids and do them much quicker. So those that are, you know, political rela- public relations companies or political campaigns, they really will have more capability on the horizon than any of these nation states we've been worrying about so far.
1: Yeah. And, and when you add artificial intelligence into it, uh, you can start to imagine that this disinformation becomes incredibly effective. I'm just wondering, you know, what is sort of the counterbalance to this? How How is there anything that could kind of, I don't know, get in the middle of this? Because basically, this is just the old propaganda campaigns on steroids.
4: Right. It, it is just taking it to cyberspace where you have, it's much more cost effective and much more effective in terms of moving populations. I think we've seen that. Ultimately, I think you know sort of a big part of the book is what happens to us over time when we're in this, and you start to see what I call preference bubbles, and so you see social media nations emerge that overtake physical nations, and by that I mean the more if you're spending three to five hours a day on your cell phone, you are with virtual connections more than physical connections, and you're starting to build relationships online that overtake your neighbors. And so that is truly devastating for real companies and countries uh, in terms of how they do their business, who governs cyberspace. I think we saw with social media companies, they're, only, they're the only ones that really understand how their systems work. Uh, governments are struggling to regulate them or understand the dangers that are there. And I think for the private sector, is a, a big issue with banks and law firms. If you want to do a compromising campaign, Where are secrets held? And secrets are held at banks and law firms. That's where the information warfare battlefield really takes place. So the implications are are devastating and will ultimately come down to civil society to solve this. We have to get a, you know, we have to restore... A basis of fact and fiction. You can't have policy debate if you have your facts and I have my facts and we're debating about whose facts are right. You can't even debate the policy because we don't even agree on where the playing field is. And and we're seeing that today. The other thing is we're seeing these bubbles start to emerge in the information space where I like you, you like me, we build our own nation. We build our own history. We start our own institutions, which reinforce our preferred facts and our preferred science and we don't come together, and we don't discuss. So it'll have implications for science, it'll have implications for government, and really it's about do you want to, your relationships in the virtual world to be about people who look like you and talk like you, or do you want it to be about your fellow Americans? And, and that's really the challenge moving forward. We have to restore what we believe in as a country and, and really what we want to push around the world.
0: In, in about uh, 40 seconds, is there any nation or group of people that are doing this better than we are here in the United States?
4: In terms of... Meeting
0: these challenges?
4: Yes. I think uh, European countries, they are actually smaller. They move quicker. Uh, They understand how to talk to their nations and what their values stand for. Sweden is a good example. They've been much more resilient to this. A lot of the Scandinavian countries in the Baltics, they've been dealing with disinformation for a long time, so they're just better equipped to deal with this over over the near term at least.
1: Maybe breaking some of the, uh, I don't know, smartphone addiction. <laughs> I'm serious. It's just if you think about it, if people spend five to six hours online, I actually saw a survey uh, today of him that showed that uh, teenagers, that almost half say that they're nearly always online when they are awake. Clint Watts, I could speak with you for the next hour. Thank you so much for being with us. Truly a fascinating uh, topic. And I look forward to reading your book, Clint Watts, Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University, author of new book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News.
0: steel and aluminum tariffs. What do they mean for producers in the United States? Well, Debbie Sean is a partner, a trade lawyer at Quinn Emanuel based in Washington, D.C. Previously, Ms. Sean was the uh, vice president of international trade and public policy at U.S. Steel and a trade official in the Clinton administration. Debbie Sean, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Does do these trade uh, sanctions these these tariffs on on aluminum and steel do they actually help anyone?
5: <laughs> uh, well thank you very much. Um well we know this. Um it's not a zero sum game. It's much too complex in the global trade community. Uh, to distill it into a winner-loser situation. But we do know in the short run, there are two uh, gains, and that's the political gain for an administration who's delivered on a political campaign promise, which almost two years to the date um, he enunciated uh, in a rally, uh, ticking off all the trade tools he was going to use. Commercially, as you wanted to um, address, Pim, is that for the protected industries, there will be an uptick on sales. uh, Prices will increase. Uh, And their stock values will likely go up as well. Um, The consumer uh, and also the downstream um, uh, suppliers and uh, uh, consumers that actually purchase steel and aluminum will see higher prices. So that will affect the construction industry, transportation industry, equipment industry. So the the downside is um, it will will also surface um, in the short term.
1: Well, Debbie, you know, I guess that I'm wondering what's the right question to ask in order to understand and observe the consequences of these tariffs? A lot of people are pointing to the decline in economic output uh, and that it's de minimis in the long run. Other people point to uh, sort of higher steel and lumber prices and, and other commodities um, and, and sort of bleeding into higher higher consumer prices. What, what metric are you looking at to determine how big of an effect this has?
5: Well, we obviously follow your show, um, and those economists around the globe that try to um, calculate um, numerically what the impact will be on different economies. Uh, As a lawyer, I look at how it impacts clients as well as the market. Um, So the short term, as I sort of enunciate it, which is the commercial and the political gain, but the damage is also incalculable on the long term. Long-term damage—that is our standing in the world, which are manifest in the view of our allies as being untrustworthy, perhaps—and right. also places at risk um, our own standing as the world's largest and most open economy. But by erecting barriers, you diminish the the, the, the trade um, the trade with other nations, and uh, and and consequently handcuff your own economy. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at it on not only a commercial, legal, but also the, to the geopolitical as well. Um, but it is consistent with this president's view of the world. Right. I may not share it, but it, he's been very consistent since day one. And what's interesting is the outlier is China. Um, right. and instead, we are focusing our our tariffs on our allies. So it it appears, at least the optics that we're coddling our adversaries while harming our allies.
1: Right. But just hold on one second. I'm sorry to break in here, but, you know, the geopolitical side is an important one. But I want to talk about uh, what you mentioned. I want to pick up on a point that you said, which is when you talk to your clients about this and you work with some of the biggest companies in the U.S., what are they saying about this?
5: Well, uh, those who are in the protected industries are uh, have actually have actually advocated for these different political tools to be used in order to advance and what we what has been always stated as leveling the playing field. Much of this happens um, uh, as a result of a view of the of the United States and being uh, put upon, right? this is this is the view that is articulated, the narrative of grievances of how we've been taken advantage of except this what what what's is happening is is the administration is actually treating a symptom not the disease so if if the structure if the in fact i think yesterday the, the director of the world trade organization articulated this it's time for these constructs to actually come into the 21st century and deal with a lot of the issues that have hamstrung the the domestic industries in the united states from getting their fair share or getting their day in court so whether it's the trade laws that haven't kept up and have been written since 1979, I think it's time for a, a modernization and, and bringing these, these tools into the 21st century because many of the tactics that are being used were never thought of or never even envisioned when these laws were created.
1: Debbie Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Debbie Sean is partner and trade lawyer at Quinn Emanuel Law Firm in Washington, D.C. She also uh, was formerly the Vice President of International Trade and Public Policy at U.S. Steel and was a trade official in the Clinton administration. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.